Now, last week we looked at Jesus defending himself against a very unusual accusation in Luke chapter 11. He'd cast out the demon of a man who had made that man mute. He was unable to speak. And when he did this, the people looked at Jesus and said, he definitely is casting out the demons by the Lord of the demons, by Satan himself. And Jesus said, what an interesting accusation you would make because that's impossible. No strong man would allow that to happen. You, you don't do that. It's only when somebody who's stronger comes. And so I'm proving to you that I am not of that. That's very interesting that he says that because what transpired next are two things that may seem unrelated to the passage that we're going to study this morning, but I actually think they are very important. And so we're going to read a couple of little small passages before we get to our focal passage this morning. And so let's start in verse 28, I'm sorry, 27 of chapter 11. Jesus has just healed this man and he's had this confrontation. And as he's saying all of these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. He said, rather be blessed or rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's a funny thing because at first glance is, is Jesus like slamming on his own mother? You know, I mean, is, is that what it is that she wasn't any good? No, he's giving a redirect here. If you go back and read Luke chapter one, Mary is blessed. I mean, she says it about herself. I mean, no doubt that she is blessed, but Jesus is making sure that we don't kind of hold Mary in a higher regard. He says, rather, blessed is the one who hears and keeps the word. So this is not an unfamiliar thing to you because Jesus tells us that, that the one who hears the word and keeps the word are truly his disciples. James tells us, we need to be hearers and doers of the word. So there's something about this that Jesus has been saying that the words that I'm teaching you, blessing follows when you hear and you do something about it. Not just when you hear it, but when you hear and you do it. So hearing and keeping, hearing and doing, it's a redirect for us that sets up the way for blessing. Then Jesus says in verse 29, something that feels a little bit like, is this cryptic? What is he, what is he trying to say? As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the son of man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look something greater then Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, now, what is this you're demanding a sign? Well, last week when he healed the mute man, there was a group that said he's definitely doing this by the power of Satan. But remember there was this small group going, they wanted a sign and he, he's saying to them, I'm gonna give you a sign. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. What, what, what does that mean? You're gonna go hide in the belly of a whale? No. But remember what happened in Jonah's story. Jonah's called by God to go to a city called Nineveh. You can read about it in the Old Testament. Short book. I think it's only four chapters. I mean, great book for you to read. And instead of going to Nineveh, he goes the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. While he's on this boat, storm comes, 
They cast lots, find out Jonah's the one in trouble. They pitch him overboard at his request. Throw me overboard, everything will be fine, he says. And remember, a whale comes and swallows him. And for three days and three nights, he stood in the belly of the well. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Do you remember? We find out later in the book, he didn't want to go because he said, I knew that you were a merciful God and that when I preached this stuff, you would let these people repent. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that God would love people enough that he would send us to share his hope with them and that they might actually repent of their sins. Jonah was very disturbed by that and we are too sometimes. <laughs> Don't act like you're that far away. He's a very close cousin to many of us. Because that person doesn't deserve God's grace. And yet I do. No, no one does. That's why it's called God's grace. But Jonah didn't want to do that. And what happened is the whole city repented. Do you remember the king of the city even saying, we're going to put sackcloth and ashes over the animals. Like you got a dog at home, you better find some sackcloth and ashes, put it on the dog. That's what's going on. Nobody's to eat. We're going full in on repentance. Maybe God will spare us. And God did. So what Jesus is saying to this group of people is, you keep demanding a sign, but you don't need it. There's this queen. She came to visit Solomon, the queen of Sheba, and she, she hears the, the great wisdom that Solomon has. And, and later, in Acts chapter, uh, I think it's eight or nine, we, we see an Ethiopian eunuch has an encounter with Philip. Where, why is he coming there to hear about Jesus? How would he even know about that? It goes all the way back to that. So what he's saying is, there have been people that got this with way less than you had and I'm giving it to you and you don't even see it. So the only sign you're gonna get is when I give you the sign of Jonah. What's he mean? I'm gonna die, I'm going to the, to the grave for three days and then I'm going to come back and that's the sign of Jonah for you. He's, he's making a reference they'll understand there that I'm going to be raised from the dead. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because What's happening here is that they're missing the light that's right in front of them. You know, John chapter one says that Jesus is the light of the world. He comes to illuminate these things and they don't see it at all. And Jesus is trying to tell them, I didn't come to be a hidden figure here, folks. And here's how he does it. He gives an illustration. Let's look at, at the next verses, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket but on a lampstand, so that those who come may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when it's bad, your body's full of darkness. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines on you. Now, in the ancient world, you understand what he's saying. We don't have light switches we flip on. You light a lamp, you put it on a stand in the center of the room so that it gives the most light everywhere it can. He said, I'm not hidden. I'm right in front of you. And you don't see it. You don't want to see it. I hear people like you do all the time saying things like, I'm just trying to find spiritual truth. And they really act like the Pharisees did. You know, the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being evil. And, and people now say, God and Jesus are evil. The God that you find in the Bible is an evil God. Jesus, we didn't read this, but Jesus said, when we attribute the work of the Holy Spirit 
to evil, it's blasphemy. And it's a really interesting thing that's going on here. And we see it all the time. People say, oh, I, I can't believe in a God like that. That's an evil God. And they say things like, I would never follow a God who, and you fill in the blank with whatever they want to. I won't follow a God like that. It's funny because all sorts of things seem to be our God. The God of pleasure, we chase it all the time. Some chase the God of self-indulgence. Some chase the God of nature. They're worshiping the created thing instead of the creator. And not only did God send Jesus, but he lifted him up, high and lifted up. We just sang it. Lifted him up for the world to see. He's crucified on a cross for our sins, your sins, my sins. He's buried, but then he overcame the grave. And if that weren't enough, He's given us the Bible. Do you realize that you live in the most privileged generation of all time? I don't mean just modern conveniences. Those are certainly great. But think about it. You live on the other side of the cross, the other side of the grave. Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. We've not only got that, but we've got something that until a couple of hundred years ago, nobody had access to, and that's the Bible that you can read. If you've got your phone, you don't even have to read it anymore. You can just listen to it in any language, in any number of translations that you choose to do. I mean, it's right in front of you. It's been preserved for us. Ancient text ever true. So then why can't people see this? What, what is it that's, that's keeping them from seeing it? Years ago, I think William Barclay nailed it. He said that the eye's like a window to the soul, isn't it? And so it, it kind of depends on the view you're looking through. If you were to build a house, we might say that there are three types of things you, you might try to do. I mean, if, if you go to a home that's got the, the big picture windows, you want that perfectly unfiltered glass so that it lets all the light in and you're really able to see and it, it's just a beautiful thing. Sometimes we take windows and we tint those windows though, don't we? You have a car and you tint the window. Why do you do it? Well, it's hot and, and it keeps it out. If you live in Nashville, you do it so people won't smash your window and take your stuff out of your car. It makes it harder to see in. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I mean, there's a reason that we do these things. It obscures something for us and, and it doesn't allow us to see clearly. When I go to my cousin's house, I love going there. His wife sewed blackout curtains. Do you know what blackout curtains are? They're a parent's dream. They let you sleep past five in the morning because you can't see anything in that room. I mean, it totally blocks the light from coming in. So when we think about the, the eye, as Jesus said, is like this, this light in our soul and making sure that, that we're receiving all the light. Well, then there's these three windows that we think about. How do we answer the question? Are we seeing clearly? Are we tinted? Are we just blacked out? Well, if you're seeing clearly this morning, that's the light that you need. Clear light illuminates and lets you see the world around you correctly. So when you think about it, it means you're looking correctly at Jesus, at his word, and following it. You're doing what he said. The way to blessing is hear the word, keep the word. So you're getting that and you're doing it. And you go back to verse 28. I think it's, it's very important. Rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
What we're doing is what the psalmist kind of channels, isn't it? When he says, I love this. We used to sing this as a song when I was growing up. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It illuminates. The word of God begins to do that. Well, you get that through three primary ways in the scripture. You get it when you come to hear the preaching of the word of God. You're here this morning. Pat yourself on the back. You're getting the first one this morning already. Somebody is taking the word of God and they're expounding on it for you and walking you through it. And that's really, really good. The second way you get it is through the reading of the word of God. You open the Bible and as you read it, God begins to speak to you. You have these divine encounters where the Lord begins to illuminate things in your life and change your way of thinking. The third way you get it is when you meditate. And I don't mean, eh, that might work. I don't know. You tell me if it does. But meditation in the scripture is not, eh. Meditation's active. It's taking the word of God and chewing it up and chewing on it and chewing on it and chewing on it and just letting it deep dive in you. Think about it like this. When Joshua's going in to take the promised land, what did Moses tell him? Meditate on the law day and night. Don't let it depart from you. Don't be afraid. You be strong and courageous. The law, this thing is going to keep you right. So it means maybe we grab a verse of scripture and we start just praying about it and, and, and thinking about it and kind of ruminating on it, so to speak, and letting the Holy Spirit take a little bit deeper dive with us in something like that. When these things happen, it changes things. It changes our worldview. A lot of us don't understand we don't have a Christian worldview because we don't have any of this in our life. We're missing it. We're not getting it. So is it any wonder that we don't speak like Christians, act like Christians, think like Christians? I mean, how would we? The word of God is what changes us through these things. And if we're not exposing ourselves to it, we're missing something. Some of us, that light is tinted because we're looking through tinted glass. It's coming in but you don't see clearly through it. And here's what I mean, and you know who you are in the room. You tinted your windows darker than they should have been, and when you put the car in reverse at night, you gotta roll down the windows. You know who you are, so you can see, right? Well, why? Because it's, it's obscured by something. And a tint is like a film, and, and I think what that really boils down to us is this idea that, well, what tints our lives? What obscures the word of God in our life? Well, it's complacency and apathy. Complacency is when we're just really happy with ourselves. We look at our lives and we're like, well, it's pretty great. I'm doing good in my job. My kids are doing good in school. They made the team. They made the honor roll. They're doing great. I'm retired now and I'm getting to live my best life doing whatever I wanna do. I'm very happy with me. That's complacency. Because it's honestly all the wrong scorecard. It'd be great, wouldn't it? Or maybe tragic to get an A in life according to the world scorecard, but be getting an F in heaven. That we could be doing, we could be winning according to the world standards and we just get complacent with it and chase that and not even realize that we're doing it. But on the other hand, the church, and I don't mean this church, although I could mean you in this church, I don't know. May the Spirit speak to us this morning. The church is apathetic. 
Here's what I mean. When we get to apathy, it, it just means that, that we're in basic kind of neutral mode and, and we don't even realize it. So the latest statistics about church attendance in evangelical churches are alarming. Listen to what this says. Not my statistic, latest statistics, you Google it. People consider themselves to be regular at church tenders who come 1.7 times per month. Now, you know I'm not good at math, so you check me on this when you go home. But if there are four Sundays in a month, you got a 43% attendance rate. Where else in life do you show up at work and go, I was here 43% of the time, can I get a raise? And they go, dude, you're failing. No, I'm regular. You're regularly bad. I'll put it for you this way. The only thing you can do in life that's worse than 43% and get paid millions of dollars is play baseball. I'm sorry, football ends tonight. I'm a little bitter. The, the MLB Almanac says it this way. The average batting average in baseball last year in the pros was 247. 25% of the time you hit a ball and they will pay you millions of dollars if you can figure out how to do it. I understand hitting a curveball is the hardest thing in the world. But think about what we're saying. The most important decision in my life changed me 43% of the time. Is it any wonder that our nation is like it is? We become apathetic and then we get all worried about the presidential election. It's too late. You get the leaders you deserve, folks. So it's too late. That, that, that meal is coming out of the oven. You understand what I'm saying? We changed the atmosphere as we sang a minute ago. Not just in presidential election years. We gotta be doing it all the time. And how can we do it if we're apathetic? Now, let me tell you something. I know what it's like to be apathetic. My entire life, I have been in church. There's not one thing new in the church that you could show me that I probably haven't seen. My dad was a pastor. My wife's dad was a pastor. We are PKs through and through. And if you're wondering, she was the rebellious one and I was the good one. She's got some stories she could tell you about herself after church. You just stop and ask her. We've seen it. I mean, what, what are you going to show me that I haven't seen? I, I've never had, I, I could probably count on all my fingers and toes how many times I've missed church in my life. Do you know what that makes you? A little apathetic. Well, we're just doing what we do. We're going to come in and do what we do. Complacent. It's dangerous for us, folks, because what starts to happen is there's a little bit of this creep that comes into our life. We call it cultural creep sometimes, and, but apathy creeps in, and I wanna just tell you how it happens. The first thing that happens is that your heart's not tender to the things of God anymore. When was the last time you cried at somebody's testimony? When was the last time your heart leapt within your soul when somebody got saved? When was the last time that you saw something that breaks God's heart and it broke yours too, beyond just like, oh, that's bad. No, that, that's tragic, that's awful. That's apathy. That's, that's our hearts not seen through the tinted glass correctly, folks. If we're not careful, the next step is, conviction doesn't sting nearly as bad as it used to. When you start sinning and it doesn't bother you anymore, watch out. 
That's like a, a check engine light screaming at you in a car going, we need to pull over, we need to pull over. Bad things are gonna happen. You're about to grenade the motor. And you're like, just add a little more oil. It's gonna be great. Don't worry about it. Just keep on running. And when we do that, is it any wonder that, that we're headed for disaster and then it comes on us? Here's why. I just read it this week. The Lord chastens those he loves. He won't let us live that way. I've been there. You've been there. You know what it's like. We don't have to do that. But when we let the film of the tent of the world and apathy and complacency creep in, what starts to happen is we miss all that God's doing. And when you start running by conviction, doesn't sting as much anymore. It's not that. Ooh, I shouldn't have done that. Watch out. Danger ahead. If you're not careful, it'll lead you to a divided heart. And once you have a divided heart, you're a 43 percenter. And on the outside, things look fine. But the long game that you're playing, it's not fine. It doesn't work. Well, clear glass, tinted glass, blacked out. The blacked out heart is the hardened heart. It's when you're so cold to the things of God, you just can't even see them anymore. We've been doing a study on Wednesday nights about the old covenants from the Old Testament and how Jesus is the new covenant that's talked about in Jeremiah 31. And Jesus inaugurates this on the Lord's Supper night, the Passover night. You remember that? This is the new covenant of my blood poured out for many. And we're talking about the centrality of the cross. You join us if you want to. It's been really good. But we were just looking through Exodus last week at how Jesus has replaced some of these, these things and there's a story that I read every time in Exodus and it breaks my heart. And it's the story of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh is a guy who is given warning after warning after warning. In fact, when Moses and his brother Aaron come, they start giving him warning through plagues. And just a few of them that the Bible says the plague happened and then Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Nile River was turned to blood. You would think that would grab everyone's attention. I'm sorry, but if I was at the Cumberland River hanging out for a day and somebody walked down and turned that to blood, you have my full attention. Not this guy. Frogs. Frogs. Everywhere. Frogs in your house. Frogs in your car. Frogs in the backyard. Frogs in the, in the front yard. And then they start to die and they stink. And it says, not moved at all. Hardened his heart. Death of livestock, their economy collapsing, not moved at all. Hail that further led to the death of crops and things like that that destroyed them, not moved at all. He hardened his heart. And then finally, the last of the plagues, which was the worst, the most terrible, the death of the firstborn son. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. You know what I, I find kind of sad about that story is I, I don't know which part of his life is more tragic. There's the part where he's in the beginning of Exodus and it says that 
He's basically annihilating the Hebrew race. As they have babies, he's annihilating those babies. And that sounds awful, but maybe he didn't know there was a God like that. But now he does. And to not know is tragic, but to know and willfully harden your heart is the saddest thing I can think of. And so maybe today it's that you're here and somebody brought you here. Maybe you've heard me preach before. You've heard a TV preacher or read the Bible or read a book or somebody shared Christ with you. Do not harden your heart today. Give your life to Christ. He's the only light that illuminates. And my prayer is that you would be sensitive to what the Lord is doing in your life so that you might be saved because there's nothing worse than hardening your heart because you get to a point where you end up like Pharaoh. What did the hardening of his heart lead to? Pharaoh grabbed everybody he could after the death of the firstborn and chased the Israelites and he was drowned in a sea and everybody with him. It's destruction. There's a way that leads to life and a way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. So be careful that you don't harden your heart this morning. If you're sitting there going, I've heard all this, be careful. Because there's a point of no return. Where's that point? I don't know. For Pharaoh, the point of no return was when he entered the Red Sea. No coming back from that. And so I think it's a good question for us to ask when we read what Jesus is saying. Can, can we flip that scripture back up on the screen, Kirk, in, in verse 33? No one lights the lamp and puts it in the cellar under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who come may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when it's bad, your body's full of darkness. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body's full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. What window leads to your soul this morning? Is it clear? You're hearing the word of God, you're reading the word of God, you're meditating on the word of God, you're allowing the word of God to shape you and illuminate your path. Is it tinted? It might be time for us to peel the layer of tint off so that we can see clearly and not have darkness in us and just become complacent and apathetic That would be a great thing for us this morning to let the Holy Spirit just kind of answer that question for us. If we claim the name of Christ, are we clear, tinted? Is your heart hard this morning? The good news is it's not too late. If you have breath in you, it is not too late to give your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Let him change you from the inside out. Let him come in and light your life. He's the light of life and the light of men. Let him do it. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's the only remedy that we have. And if you've never done that today, could I ask you to trust in a savior 
who died on a cross for you and gave his life for you. He was buried and three days later, not even the grave could contain him because he overcame death. And he lives today and he welcomes all who would come to him. Would you give your life to Christ? I'm gonna pray for us and we're going to sing a song of response that asks the light of the Lord to shine on us. Let's, let's bow with prayer right now. Father, for those in the room that they're looking through the clear window, thank you for that. God, what a gift it is. And we recognize it's not because we did it. It's because you've saved us. And Father, as you illuminate our lives, we want to be filled with your light. Every spot. Lord, don't let there be any darkness in us this morning. Father, I certainly believe that it could be possible that in a room like this, some of us are struggling with complacency and apathy. God, would you peel the tent off the window? God, soften our hearts again. Let our heart beat in rhythm with yours, to see what you see, to enjoy what you enjoy, to be heartbroken over what breaks your heart. And God, for the one who's not felt that sting of conviction in a long time, Lord, there's a difference when we feel bad about something we do versus when the Holy Spirit nudges us and then that still small voice says, this isn't right. Holy Spirit speaking, we are listening. And Father, if there be any man, woman, boy or girl in the room whose heart is hardened this morning, the only remedy I know of is for Christ to break through the coldness of that stone like he broke through the coldness of the stone in the grave that held him. Lord Jesus, would you in this moment save someone? Restore their relationship to the Father. And I pray that as we enter into this moment, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray.